Hello and welcome to Behind the Health Statistic. My name is Ricky Hellier and I'm a lecturer at Cardiff University School of Healthcare Sciences. In this two-part episode, we're going to be looking at the topic of long COVID. In this first part, my colleague Professor Danny Kelly will be talking to Dr. Alison Twycross. And in the second interview, I'll be talking to Lisa Gill about her experience of long COVID. So what is long COVID? Well, following an acute infection of the coronavirus, um, people have been documented as experiencing problems which tend to go on for weeks and even months after initial infection. It's been labelled as post-COVID-19 syndrome or long COVID. Symptoms include fatigue, breathing difficulties, chest pain or tightness, memory problems, which people have said is like a brain fog, insomnia, palpitations, dizziness, odd sensations like pins and needles in their limbs, joint pain, depression and anxiety, hearing problems, and even down to things like gastrointestinal problems, including feeling sick and having diarrhea and a loss of appetite. People have also described symptoms such as high temperature, persistent coughing, headaches, and changes to a sense of smell or taste. The UK Office for National Statistics has tried to capture the numbers involved in long COVID, and they reckon that there's around about one in five people who've tested co- positive for COVID-19 have had symptoms which have lasted more than five weeks, and even around about one in 10 respondents of their surveys have had symptoms which have gone on for 12 weeks or longer. In fact, they estimated that in November 2020, around 186,000 people in households in England were living with long COVID symptoms. So over to Danny and Alison. So, Alison, thank you very much for taking part in this behind the stats discussion. Um, We're really grateful that you've agreed to share your experiences of long COVID. So I'm just going to jump right in, really, and ask you if you could tell us what's been happening and where you are now. Okay, so I got my first COVID symptoms on the 12th of March last year, which was the day the government stopped testing in the community. So I I, I wasn't able to have a test at that point. I had already decided to stay at home as much as possible because I, um, my long-term conditions made me clinically vulnerable. Um, but as soon as I had symptoms, I started isolating properly. Um, my initial symptoms were, I have, were like, I had, I had the, the high temperature, although my normal temperature is quite low. And so I had difficulty convincing people that I had a temperature. I had um, a cough, I was breathless. Um, I, I had a really bad headache. My throat was so sore that when I spoke, I went, ow. And um, oh, there was one of, oh, and yeah, and actually initially, although this didn't last for long, I had really severe pain, lower abdominal pain that went all and that went around my back, which also made me say, ow, when, when, when I moved. Um, and I mean, I, yeah. So, and it was, I actually remember phoning my sister and my cousin and saying, do you think this is COVID initially? Because it was just as they started, um, they started talking about what the symptoms were and we decided I did have it. Um, And for the first 10 days, I was kind of okay. I could manage to keep on working from home if I had a bit of a rest at lunchtime. I did speak to my GP after four or five days and because I'm an asthmatic, he gave me some steroids uh, for five days and some antibiotics. 
they didn't really touch my temperature. Um, and I rang at the end of the, that, the Friday, sort of a week, just over a week later, I kind of crashed quite spectacularly. I think I was on a, 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 a video conference, having a quick catch up with the, some of the safeguarding leads for the local churches about how we were gonna manage things. And my brain just went. Um, and I then spent three, three, three weeks in bed, more or less. Um, couldn't really get up. If I got up, it was just for an hour. Um, my temperature was really high. I had no energy. I had a really big, big headache. I don't know that I've ever felt that ill. Um, I, I, I actually planned on one of my lucid moments. I planned my funeral um, and put notes on my phone. Um, I think I tweet my sister out by giving her access to my Facebook account if, if anything happened to me. Um, and I think those feelings that I was really sick were probably intermittent, but they were very real. In the middle of all that, I got my letter from the government telling me I was in the extremely clinically vulnerable group. And that freaked me out a little bit. Because um, I, I knew I had all these conditions that um, might make me um, more vulnerable and I was on immunosuppressants. Um, but I guess you did not, you, you think it's not going to be you. Um, and oh yes, and the other thing is ringing NHS 111. So I rang, I, I'm not being, so I, I, off, a couple of days after I first got symptoms, I was on the, I think the Crohn's and Colitis website. And it said that if you had, were on immunosuppressants, you should call NHS 111. So I summoned up the energy to phone NHS 111, because one of the things I've realized is it's really hard work phoning NHS 111 when you're not feeling very well and you've uh, and you can I, I have visions oh I mean I recollect rather lying on the sofa in in my office here or in the sitting room with my phone on speakerphone for what seemed like hours trying to get through to speak to somebody but the first time I rang I wanted advice about when to worry about my asthma and whether I should carry on taking my immunosuppressants and all I got was just stay at home, just stay at home. Your whole family has to stay at home. And, and there, there was no advice. And, and for someone who's quite capable of managing their own long-term conditions, that was quite scary because I felt that where I'd normally go for advice wasn't there anymore. Um, and so I just, I just carried on as, as normal. And it wasn't until I was speaking to a GP a week later that she said, oh, I think you should email your gastroenterologist to see what he thinks about the immunosuppressants. And there was just no guidance out there about asthma or Crohn's or colitis or even high blood pressure. Um, and actually in the end, my, my um, gastroenterologist, uh, who's at St. George's in Tooting, replied to say that um, I should probably come off them. And it was about two or three days later that he sent me a link to some information that had been published by the, I think it was the British Gastroenterology Society, but I might have got the name wrong. They just published some guidance about whether you were extremely clinically vulnerable because of your treatments. And so this isn't really relevant to long COVID, but I think it's important that people realise how scary it was for people with long-term conditions 
who got COVID early on, not to be able to get access to the advice that they um that they needed. And, and it really a, felt you're a, you're a health professional, Alison. Yeah, and I'm a registered nurse, right? Um so and and very used to managing my own long-term conditions. And it really felt like the government were focusing on having left it a little bit too late. They were panicking about ITU beds. They suddenly realised that the, the, the virus was transmitting much faster than they thought it was in the community. So they wanted us all to stay at home and that was what they were focusing on. Um, and it kind of felt that we were forgotten. It felt a bit like that when they, when they told us all to shield who were extremely clinically vulnerable as well, because they, um, there was no support. We didn't do online shopping. David used to go shopping on a, on a Saturday morning. It was kind of like doing that. And we, we, we had, it, it, it took till Easter Sunday, I think, to, to get a, a, um, a, an online shop. And so, that, and so we were having to ask friends to go out and get stuff for us. Um, and and, and that, that was quite hard. And they kind of, we eventually got food parcels and I'm gluten free and half of it I couldn't eat. So that it was, we, we were forgotten, I think. So I guess going back to my, 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 my story, um, I guess my GP on several occasions thought that I might just have a chest infection. So I had a second lot of antibiotics when the first ones were working. Um, I'm lucky in some ways that my father's a retired physician and I remember having a phone call with him about, uh, they're not working, what do I do? And we decided that, I must have coronavirus at that point because my temperature wasn't doing what your temperature was supposed to do if you had a bacterial infection and you were on antibiotics. Um, and actually, it was it was a quite a scary time having COVID and it being rampant in the hospitals. And I remember David being terrified that they were going to admit me because he thought that. It would, it would be dreadful. And there was one Sunday when I rang NHS 111 and actually got through to the on-call GP. This was about 12 days in, 10 or 12 days in. And we had this big debate about whether or not I should go in. And at that point, if I'd gone into A&E with someone whose asthma might have been a little bit out of control, who normally had been seen by the a GP at this, with the symptoms I had, um, I wouldn't have got a test. And I wouldn't have got a chest x-ray. So in the end, we decided that I would stay at home and sweat it out. Um, and I had really strict instructions to dial 999 or get David, my partner, to dial 999 if I couldn't breathe. Interestingly, I don't know if they'd give that advice now, because we now know that there's this silent hypoxia. And they recommend that every family, or every household, has an oxygen saturation monitor. And I wonder, I, I, looking back, I wonder what my O2 sats were at that, at that point. Um, but we'll, 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 we'll never know. So I spent three weeks in bed. Some of the time I couldn't even cope with having my mobile phone with me and, and had to give it to David to look after. Um, I gradually thought I was getting better. Each week I seemed to be getting a little bit better. And um, managing to um, stay up a little better, even if I wasn't doing anything when I was up. I'd, I'd maybe crawl, I'd managed to walk around the garden once or twice, but that, that was about it. Um, and 
by Easter day, which was probably, I can't remember what day Easter was like, it was probably about a month after I'd got COVID, I began to think that I was on the road to recovery. And we had a family Zoom call on, on Easter day. And mum commented that she thought I was looking better. Although I've never really looked very sick all the way through. It's one of the problems of, of having long COVID in particular that you look well. Um, but um, I crashed a couple of days later and I remember Googling probably in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep, um, post-viral fatigue and long COVID. And remarkably for 2020, there was nothing on Google at that point. Um, and I went back to being in bed most of the time. A lot of my symptoms got worse. Um, I didn't sleep well. Um, and I, 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 developed, I developed nausea, but it was, it was worse. It, it, that got worse at a later date before it got better. I hadn't, the headache and the fatigue, and I didn't mention brain fog earlier, they contribute to this brain fog. And so I'm, I'm an academic whose job is reading, writing and editing. And I haven't managed to read a book for more than half an hour in the last year. And when it was half, it was when I was trying to convince myself that I was fit to go back to work. Um, so going back to Googling um, long COVID and, oh, COVID, sorry. Can I just ask, so all this had happened, had you had a COVID test? No. The first time I got a COVID test was um, when I think it was the end of May, people who were 65 or older and their households could have COVID tests. So my, Dave is older than me and he's, he's he, is over 65 and so we got the do at home tests and uh, so it was the end of May beginning or June by the time either of us were tested and um, it came back negative unsurprisingly but there was no access to tests it was incredibly frustrating I remember freaking out on Facebook almost well I sent my brother the, the, the text the post to check because Prince Charles had had one I think and um and, and some, some, some of the, some of the um, cabinet had had some, had, had a test, and yet I couldn't get one. And I was particularly perturbed that my colleagues working in clinical practice couldn't get them either. So, I mean, so that was really hard because you were kind of, people didn't always believe that you'd had COVID-19 because you hadn't had a test, whereas both of us had it. David got better in about four weeks. Um, but um, yeah, um, it, yeah, that, that, that's, not having that test has caused problems further down the line in, in, some, in some ways in that it wasn't until, I think it took me till November to get long COVID on my sick note. Um, and that was when I begged the GP. Um, so and she said, it's not gonna make any difference. And I said, it would make me feel better, sorry. So this idea of a, a diagnosis you know, getting the diagnosis. So you didn't get the diagnosis of COVID-19 and then you didn't really get the diagnosis of long COVID, but you've been living with those symptoms yeah. all that time. So how did that feel during that time? I mean, it was, I haven't actually seen my GP in over a year. Um, so 
engaging with them was difficult. Um, I think at the beginning, they didn't really know what was going on. I, I think for myself and, and lots of other people with long COVID who I've um, been in touch with on some of the Facebook pages, it's been really hard not having a diagnosis and not being able to access the tests that, that, that we need. So intellectually, it's been quite interesting having, a, having an illness that was so new that nobody really knew anything about it. I've spent the last 25 years promoting evidence-based practice. I edit evidence-based nursing and it's like, there isn't any evidence. Um, and on top of that, not having had the, um, had a test because they just weren't available, made it even harder to access care. It, I think Trish Greenhall and, her, and, and some of her colleagues published a, a paper in one of the BMJ journals in August. And it was about how G, what GPs should be doing in primary care to manage long COVID. And that was really the first time it was acknowledged that not having had a test shouldn't mean you, 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 you didn't have a diagnosis of long COVID. But I remember having a discussion with, with the GP when I ran to get my, my sick note um, and asked him to put long COVID on my sick note. And he said, even, I think in September or October, no, you can't have it on there because you had never had a test. Um, and, and so it's been, it's been quite hard. And I think one of the things that's been quite frustrating for myself and other people with long COVID is that even as, as evidence has emerged, that ne hasn't necessarily been adopted by the people working in primary care. Um, I, got my I got a diagnosis of having post-COVID pneumonitis when I got admitted to hospital as an emergency at the beginning of October, um, which, which in retrospect turned out to be a good thing. Well, I, I, it was another, that was another occasion I thought I was probably gonna die. Um, that, um, that hospital admission meant I've got access to some of the care that I've, I've needed and just tests and things. So I think not having a diagnosis was, was, was really hard. Um, information did begin to emerge about the fact that I wasn't the, I wasn't the only one out there. There was a blog on, there were some blogs on the BMJ website. There were papers in the Guardian in particular seemed to be quite good at posting this. So mum and dad were always sending them over to me. Um, and, um, yeah, and I, I think knowing that there were other people out there uh, made it easier. But one of the things I found quite fascinating is um, how people grasp at anything that might, might make them feel better or might be a cure. And I think that's been particularly interesting for someone who's so used to looking at what the evidence says before they do anything. And that there, there are lots of ideas out there. A low histamine diet is supposed to work, um, but I, there, there isn't that much evidence. There are all sorts of um, vitamins and stuff that you can take and supplements that people think might help. The only one I tried was magnesium um, and that made me feel sick, sticker than I felt. The nausea brought, I had really bad nausea. So I stopped it after five days. But there was evidence that that could help with inflammation. But people have really been grasping at straws. And I don't know whether you watched the, the It's a Sin program on 
that was a series on Channel 4, there was a scene in there that really kind of um, struck a chord because at one point there's there's a it's the mid 80s I think 1980s and there's a guy in a phone box ringing a hotline trying to find out if all these things he's heard might work to cure HIV and AIDS and one of the one of the I can't remember all of them but one of them was drinking bleach and and it kind of I thought that's exactly what it's like when it's a new disease and I'm not saying COVID-19 and long COVID are, are the same as AIDS, AIDS and HIV but there are similarities to how how it, it, it emerges and people are not believing. A lot of us have been gaslighted by our GPs. I've only had that happen to me once, um, but lots of other people I know are, aren't, aren't believed and particularly women are told it's all in their mind. Um, so I'm lucky that that's only happened to me once. Can I ask it, I mean, in relation to that other virus, um, do you feel there's been a stigma around long COVID? I don't know. Interesting, I don't know that there has. I think some people don't believe it, it exists. And in, this week, interestingly, there's been a few papers that have been published that are saying it's all in people's minds. So is it a stigma? I don't think it's a stigma in the, in the way HIV AIDS was to start with, because it was in that, it was seen as being a disease of gay men. And that you can see that there was a lot of just that there still is, but there was a huge amount of discrimination then. Um, and actually, watching it's a sin scared me because it reminded me how how bad it was, and that things are still can still be bad. Um, but I think it was discriminatory in that a lot of medics thought it was in our head, and and a bit like the M the ME chronic fatigue. Um, patients who for 20 or 30 years have fought this battle um, yeah and it, it was very interesting people just didn't, didn't believe you and maybe one of the issues is that long COVID people don't have the same don't have the same journey lots of people have different symptoms um, so maybe it's easier if everybody's going to the doctor saying that they've got this headache that won't go away and they're nauseated but the, the huge variety of symptoms um, and the range of symptoms, I think make it harder sometimes for people to believe it. It's not a linear recovery either. So the, the other week I went for a walk with a friend in the village and for some reason walked at my normal pace and, and I got back after an hour and I couldn't talk. And I was so tired and I actually that put me back for 10 days. I could hardly do anything. Um, and on other occasions, a Zoom call with a friend or a colleague has like put me back for an hour. Um, and so I think maybe the non-linear recovery is hard for people to understand. Um, do, 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 have, have I answered your question? Yeah, thank Sorry. you. Yes. Do you do you think that um, could you name any things that were most helpful? I think the thing that was most helpful was when I realised that pacing was important. So this is something we, we as a, a lot the long COVID community probably learnt about from the 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 ME chronic fatigue community. 
So pacing is about pacing yourself, not doing too much, planning, prioritizing and planning. Um, and for someone like me, who's used to cramming as much into the, as the, as into the day as they possibly could, and until a couple of years ago was leaving the house at seven in the morning, commuting into London and not getting home till eight at night and working that whole time. Um, and I'm used to pushing myself to achieve. But the end of May, David, my partner, fractured his pelvis um, on his first bike ride out and was non-weight bearing for 12 weeks. So I don't normally do any of the house, household stuff. I had to do the cooking and the cleaning and everything else as well as being sick. Um, and that was when I really had to learn about pacing and accept that was what I needed to do. So I had, before David fell off his bike, I had been going for like a walk around the fields behind the house, but I had to stop doing that because surviving life was enough. So there've been times in the last year, not so much recently, where I've had to go into survival mode. And that's the advice I give to people being diagnosed with long COVID now, is you have to go into survival mode. You just have to do what you need to do. So a friend said to me, well, housework only is doing again. So I had a really strict regime. I think I cleaned the loos once a week. The, bed, the beds got changed once a fortnight. Um, uh, we didn't know how to do any ironing until David could sit on a, a, on a stool and do it. Um, and uh, we, we got someone in to mow the lawn because that was something I didn't really need to do. Um, yeah. And it, yeah, because at that point in time, just putting a Tesco's online order in would wipe me out for the day. So pacing is important and prioritizing and planning. I think prioritizing is really important, but even when you prioritize, you might not get everything done that you'd, you'd, you'd plan to do. And it is something I've really struggled with. And last weekend, I decided I had to like take myself in hand because like having done that walk and given myself a relapse. And I, I, I've actually now got a, a, a weekly schedule which says what I'm going to do each day. So for today, it was just this, this Zoom call with you, for example. Um, um, and I've changed my out of office. So it says I'm only going to answer my emails a couple of times a week. And this schedule now says there's three or two or three things I'm going to do each day. And then the rest of the time, I have to rest. Um, and I don't know how people with long COVID who were homeschooling coped. I can't imagine what that was like. Um, and my life is just kind of much, I mean, it, I haven't been out of Buckinghamshire very much in the last year. Occasionally I go to Oxfordshire. Um, we, we just don't really do very much. My, my, my um, nieces and nephews might ask me what I've been up to every now and then and I have to kind of think, mm. <laughs> I, I saw a friend in the garden and I went for a walk. So learning to pace, um, I think was, was, was quite important. Um, and if anyone on, on listening to the, the, um, the recording wants information about that, the Royal College of OTs, Occupational Therapists, have some really good resources that help you, you do it. Um, but I mean, I fail all the time, but um, yeah. We all, um, we all, we all, uh, fail. We all fail, Alison, <laughs> don't worry about that. We're getting towards the end. So 
What would you say needs to change? I, I suspect things might be changing a little bit because some of my friends who've been, who've got long COVID in the last few months have managed to access the care they need much earlier on. However, I think the government put some funding into long COVID clinics in England, and I think they've done it in Wales. I don't know about Scotland, um, but that funding only runs till the end of March. And I had a good experience, but actually I still think I could have done with, with like, rather than just talking to a physio online, because I'm not very coordinated, I could have done with some help developing these yogic breathing exercises they wanted me to do. So I think um, the government needs to realise that there are a lot of us with long COVID that's gone on for more than a year. Um, people are running out of money because like, or, or the lucky ones among us, like me, have had a year's sick pay. That's about a run out. Um, so they, they need to think about how they can support people in that way. Um, not everyone's had the tests they need. So the long COVID clinics need more funding and that needs to include psychologists, physios, and the respiratory consultants in particular. And um, I was gonna say something, I, I, there was one other I was gonna say and I can't remember what it was. Um, but th there needs to be underlying organic cause. Then we need access to psychological support, not because it's in our head, but because being ill for a long time causes psychological issues. Um, and some places are better at that than others. And, and actually, respiratory consultants are important, but it might be that you need access to other specialists as well. And I realise that respiratory, respiratory physios have probably been super, super busy, but actually some online access to respiratory physios would be, be helpful. On a, on a national level, across the four nations, I think there should be um, more information about the number of people who've got long COVID and particularly the number of people who've got long COVID for 12 weeks or more, and, and those have got it going on for a year, because then it makes it really obvious and it identifies the need. Um, and there needs to be more research about treatments because we still really don't know what works for long COVID. We think pacing works. Um, my respiratory consultant said to me, people are getting better, but it just takes time. Um, and one of the difficult things for me is not knowing how long I'm going to be sick and I'm undoubtedly much better than I was before but I've still got headaches I still have some problems with insomnia I've still got brain fog not so, so some of the symptoms have got better but there's some of them haven't and some of them are still there does that answer your question it does and it takes us to to the end really Alison but I just want to say thanks again for taking us through what, just, what has been a clearly a very difficult time for everybody, but for people like you, it's been like a, a particularly magnified experience. And I know you're a, you're a professor of children's nursing, you've got all that experience behind you, and yet you've also struggled. So there's probably many, many people who don't have that background who have really struggled to, to get answers. But the intention is that hopefully this message can give some insight into the long COVID experience. And 
you know, on behalf of everyone involved, just to wish you um, well, wish you health and recovery. And I hope next time I see you, that you're in a much better place. So thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. Thanks, Alison. Take care. So a huge thank you to Dr. Twy Cross for sharing her story with Danny there. Um, I'm sure people found it extremely informative um, and it was a very powerful listen. Um, if you'd like more information on Long Covid, please look at the NHS website. And also, please tune into episode two, um, where I'll speak to Lisa Gill about her experiences of Long Covid. Thanks for listening.